All right, hello everybody. Um, getting started a little bit late this morning, so I'm not sure if I'll get to a good stopping point, but let's uh, just see what happens. Uh, I'm not sure who's going to take over next week. Is that you, Bob? Okay. So uh, you guys will continue in? He's going to do Mother's Day. Okay, okay. The Mother's Day service, and we'll be back. I, I should be able to be with you a couple of Sundays before we head down to Peru, and uh, we'll try to get through chapter 20, and that'll leave us with uh, two chapters, uh, hopefully to finish before the end of the year, so we'll see. But let's open to Revelation chapter 20. Last week, I kind of reviewed by looking back at the outline for this book that John was given by Jesus. And we transitioned from chapter 19, the end of this present age, into the age to come, which is the millennial reign of Jesus Christ, a very literal thing that we can expect, something that was promised in the Old Testament, something that was affirmed when the angel visited Mary and said that what was in her womb would be great, be the son of the highest, and God would give unto him the throne of his father, David. So these things we're going to see realized. Uh, the millennial reign of Christ or the Messiah is detailed throughout the Old Testament. Here, the main context is the destruction of evil. In chapter 20, we see the destruction of Satan highlighted in the first 10 verses. And then we see this destruction final. And when I talk about destruction, I'm not talking about annihilation. Eternal destruction. You can be destroyed without being annihilated. Uh, eternal destruction of Satan, and then followed by the eternal destruction of the wicked dead. That's the main context here. The New Testament doesn't see the need to shed further light on what's already been expounded in the Old Testament, save to fix a time frame. And so sandwiched in this, we learn a very important detail about this age to come. We learn the length of time. And that length of time is not mentioned once. It's mentioned six times in this passage. And there's no reason to take it to mean anything other than what it says. There's a thousand-year Sabbath rest coming to this present creation. That must be. It must be fulfilled before God destroys this present creation, as Peter talks about in fire, and the elements melt with fervent heat. And then he creates a new heaven and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. So this millennium begins... Following the return of Christ, we talked about some transition events that are mentioned in the book of Daniel. And we got into verse 1. An angel came down from heaven having the key of the bottomless pit and had a great chain in his hand. And we go into verse 2. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years. So one of the, the important events that begins the reign of Christ on earth is the incarceration of the devil, the binding of, of him for a thousand years. The devil is bound during this time. He that deceived the nations is not allowed to deceive them during this time. And yet, we'll see that man continues to strive with his maker. Without the devil, without his influence, without his deception... The carnal mind, even during the reign of Christ, is still at enmity with God. So that when the devil is loosed for a little season, he doesn't have to make allies 
to rebel against the Messiah. He finds them ready and willing. That's the way it is most of the time. We want to blame the devil. The devil made me do it. That's ridiculous. And what we learn here in chapter 20 proves it. We're more often than not ready and willing collaborators. We're, many of us are deceived because we're content to be deceived. We don't want to know the truth. This angel that's given the keys to the bottomless pit, he lays hold, it says here, on the dragon, that old serpent, the devil. There's no doubt as to the identity of this individual. There's no doubt as to the identity of the dragon. We see the same thing back in chapter 12, verse 9, when for the first time in Scripture... The devil is specifically connected with the serpent way back in the Garden of Eden. Now, we know that's him. It's strongly implied as the adversary appears from time to time throughout the Scriptures. But in verse 9, and the great dragon was cast out. Remember, he was cast out of heaven, the midpoint of the tribulation. That old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceived the whole world, he was cast out. And his angels were cast out with him. Satan's access to heaven is lost halfway through the tribulation. Here, his access to earth is lost. And it's, he's identified as that same dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil. This is the same devil that was subtle in the Garden of Eden. The same adversary that accused righteous Job before the throne of God. That old Leviathan that's mentioned at the end of Job. The one who provoked David to number Israel instead of trusting God. He sat behind earthly powers as a, as a puppeteer with marionettes on strings. He sat behind the king of Tyre, the king of Babylon. He's the one who's resisted and troubled Israel all down through the ages, who stood accusing the high priest after the return to the land in the book of Zechariah. He's the accuser. He tempted our Lord in the wilderness. He possessed Judas. He's accused the brethren, the church down through the ages, falsely. An enemy of Israel and the church. One who deceives the nations. One who brings and raises up his antichrist. A powerful and formidable foe. There's no doubt as to his identity here. And as I thought about that, I asked myself and I ask you today, is there any doubt as to the identity of the Jesus we serve? when we preach him. The Bible makes it very clear who the dragon and the old serpent is. Do we make it very clear to the world who the Jesus is that we serve? As the Bible is clear about identity, so should we. Do we preach Jesus as he is in truth? Or do we present him as something other, something that agrees more with our own opinions, our own lusts and pleasures? There are plenty in the world that do. I mean, come on. We've got a sodomite, a homosexual, that's running for the presidency of the United States 
who appears on the front of Time magazine with his so-called husband, a very disgusting sight, who attends church and talks about serving his creator and loving Jesus. Well, the person that told this sodomite about Jesus didn't present Jesus as he is in truth. Or this wicked man wouldn't be comfortable in his abomination and present it to the world, flaunt it to the world as, it's, as if it's acceptable. Now, my friends, the American, no one has ever gone broke in history betting on the stupidity of the American people. So don't think that something as ridiculous as this couldn't end up sitting in the White House. And if it does, we deserve it. We get the government we deserve because our nation has forgotten willfully forgotten who Jesus is in his true identity. We don't even know the devil as he is in his true identity, so how can we know Jesus? As we preach him, may we preach him so there's no doubt as to who we're talking about, just as there's no doubt to who the scriptures are talking about here, to who is imprisoned, who is incarcerated. That devil is, is bound for a thousand years. That formidable foe no doubt as to his identity. He's formidable. He's powerful. But he's not omniscient. He's not omnipotent. He doesn't have all power. He can deceive, but he doesn't have all knowledge. He wants to be these things. He acts as if he is, but he never can be. You see, the devil doesn't have free will. We talk about free will in our lives, and we throw these words around as if we have the freedom to do whatever we want to do, whenever we want to do. Do it. I think we need to be careful about the words we use. I don't think the Bible teaches that any of God's creatures have absolute free will. God gives us a choice to follow Him or to reject Him, but that's not free will. I don't have the free will to stand out there on that sidewalk and jump from that sidewalk to the top of this house, even if I want to. I don't have the free will to be sincere and say I love Jesus and continue in my sins. The devil doesn't have the free will to be the things he aspires to be. He can't be omniscient. He can't be omnipotent. As bad as he wants to be, and as much as he makes others think so, he is not free and without restraint. And neither are we. You can't do whatever you want to do under God's watch, and neither can the prince of darkness. You can't. Your will is limited by a sovereign God. Now, I don't know if that makes you comfortable or not. I really don't care. You don't have absolute free will. Neither do I. Neither does the prince of darkness. And I praise God for that. I praise God that there's a governor that restrains evil. He gives us a choice, but absolute free will, would we'd be worse off than we are now. People think they're free to do whatever they don't, they want to do. And in thinking so, they forget that there's a payday someday. Our nation has the same problem that Israel has. Perhaps Israel, the modern state, learned it from us. Israel's greatest problem is they look around at what they have following the Holocaust and the modern state of Israel. They look around at what's been built and what's been accomplished, and Israel thinks Israel did this. 
America thinks America did what we have today. We think we're free, we've done this. And oh, how foolish that is. Oh, how foolish. So foolish that we can sit and actually listen to people who believe it's okay to butcher babies in the third trimester talk about making America moral again. Are you kidding me? But that's the product of such foolishness that thinks we're free and thinks we don't need our maker. It's a couple of interesting passages of Scripture on this note in the Old Testament. Jeremiah 13, 23. I may ask some of you to read this morning. We have some different passages I want to look at. Jeremiah 13, 23. This is what God says to Israel in her rebellion. Can the Ethiopian change his skin? Or the leopard his spots. If it's so, if it's so that the black man can change his skin, some think they can. Some, some white people think they're black, and blacks think they're white, and men, men think they're women, and women think they're men. But can a, can a man actually change his gender? <laughs> no, that's ridiculous. Only an insane people would think so. Only a nation where a nation that's an insane asylum run by the inmates would think so. But can the Ethiopian change his spots? Can the black man, I mean, can the black man change his skin color or the leopard his spots? If he can, then you may also do good who are accustomed to evil. If the black man can change his skin color, then we who are accustomed to evil can actually do good. That's God's point there. How can one do good who is accustomed to evil? And yet the, 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 the prince of darkness, who is evil personified, presents himself as an angel of light, and we fall for it all the time. Isaiah 29. Isaiah 29, 15 and 16. Woe unto them that seek deep to hide their counsel from the Lord. And their works are in the dark, and they say, who, saith, who seeth us, and who knoweth us? That's what the devil tries to do. He thinks he can actually keep his counsel and his plans from the Lord. Surely your turning of things upside down shall be esteemed as the potter's clay. For shall the work say of him that made it, he made me not? Or shall the thing framed say of him that framed it, he had no understanding. To all those out there that would say, if there is a God, then why? Why am I this? Why am I that? Who are you, the thing framed, to say or accuse him who framed you? Who is the creature to say to the creator, why? That's the simple answer to that. Those that have a problem with evil when they can't even see the evil in their own lives, that's the answer. Who are you? To say to the one who made you, why have you made me thus? Paul quotes this passage in Romans chapter 9 when he talks about God raising up Pharaoh. God has mercy upon whom he wants to have mercy and he'll, have, he'll, he'll uh, execute wrath upon whom he wants to execute wrath. We ought to be satisfied with that. And those of us that have found Christ and his grace in our lives ought all the more to praise him and to be thankful. These are attributes of God, not attributes of the devil, even though he wants to be. He's not all-powerful. He's not omniscient. 
And because our adversary is not these things, we, in this present age, when he is alive and real, when he prowls around like a lion seeking whom he may devour, because he is not these things, we, the blood-bought saints of the living God, we can resist him. We can fight him. It's not like fighting an unbeatable foe. James is very clear about this in chapter 4 of his epistle. James 4 verse 7. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. We often compartmentalize that verse. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. No. It's not that, it's not that alone. This is attached to submit yourself to God. It's not resist and he'll flee, but submit and resist and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he shall lift you up. These are the ways whereby we resist him. To submit to God, to humble ourselves, to cleanse our hearts, to not be double-minded, to see the darkness around us and not think it's a joke, but to weep and mourn for where we are as a country. But we can resist him and he will flee. This prince of darkness, as he has no power to stop his incarceration, not at the hands of a heavenly army, but at the hands of a single angel, given that power, in the same vein, he has no power over us unless we give it to him. And we give it to him through our lust, our pride, and our fear. In John 19, 11, Jesus refused to debate or defend himself before Pilate, the governor. Pilate said, you know, don't you know I have the power to give you life or death or to condemn you and you're not even going to answer me? And then Jesus spoke up and said, you would have no power unless it were given you from Satan? No, unless it were given you from above. Therefore, those that have delivered me to you have the greater sin. The devil has no power. The wicked have no power over us unless we give it to them or unless it comes from above for our good. Because all things work together for good to them that love God and are called according to his purpose. When the devil, the tempter, that old serpent approached Jesus in the wilderness to tempt him with the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life, what did Jesus do? Did Jesus fight him? Did Jesus defend himself? Did Jesus get off on a tangent? No, Jesus said, It is written. Three very powerful words. He fought that old serpent with the word of God. Appeal to God with his word when we have a need. Call God to account for the promises he has given in his word in those seasons of doubt and trial. But also indict the devil with that same word. That is the model we have given to us by our Savior. Appealing to God with his word and indicting the old serpent with that same word. 
Fear is a way we give that old serpent, the dragon, power over us. Fear is a real problem for believers. It's a real problem. When we ought to be afraid of being afraid. It's a sin to worry. It is. And I'm guilty as the next man. It's a sin. Jesus tells us not to concern ourselves with the things of tomorrow. Tomorrow will take care of itself. To be anxious or worried for nothing, but to take things to God in prayer. Call God. Call out to God and hold Him to His Word. Because He keeps His Word. But fear is a real problem for believers. We ought to be afraid of being afraid lest we vex the Holy Spirit by our foolish distrust and thereby give power to that old serpent, the devil. The wicked in power prey upon and thrive upon fear. Those wicked powers that be, both spiritual and physical, prey upon the fear of the masses. They thrive and survive upon disseminating fear. That's what terrorists do. Hamas has power in the Gaza, not necessarily because the average people in there appreciate them. They're afraid of them. And then they use rockets and launch them into Israel to keep people in fear. They're terrorists. Al-Qaeda, ISIS, we have no problem seeing these people who use fear, who, who use violence to sow fear and thereby control people as terrorists. But we have terrorists right here in our own country that use lies and deceit, tricks of that same old devil, the same old devil who loves violence, <clears throat> loves lies and deceit. We have terrorists in this country, terrorists, well-funded terrorist organizations. The national news media is one of them. They use fear to prey on the people of this country. In many ways, we deserve it because we've turned our back on God. We don't even have the discernment to know real and fake news anymore. And guys, there's as much fake news on the right as there is on the left. Make no mistake. But the national media in this country is a terrorist organization. Just go read about, the, go read some coverage from this weekend's rocket attack in Israel. Just read it carefully. And what is written by these editors is acts of terrorism. The way they write these things and the way they subtly highlight the fact that a, a pregnant Palestinian woman was killed, but ignore the fact that factory workers in Israel going about their normal business or an elderly man going about his normal business was blown to pieces. That takes a back seat because Israel's always at fault. These wicked people that write these articles are servants of that old serpent, the devil. They're evil. They're a stain on this country. They're terrorists, and they should be tried and sentenced accordingly. That's my opinion. Many of the people that write these op-eds in the national papers are terrorists who should pay for their crimes with their lives. That's my opinion. They're evil, wicked people. Don't ever give an interview to somebody with the national news media. Spit in their face. That's what I'd like to do. Because they're wicked devils who serve the prince of darkness, who use fear to prey on people. But we don't have to be afraid. We don't have to listen to their fake news and be intimidated by it. We don't have to go to people like this for the truth or for authority. We can know more about what's happening in the world by understanding human nature as presented in this book than we can by any article written by any person. 
It's a wicked person that would twist the truth to make people afraid. That is a terrorist. And a terrorist is just like his father, the devil. But we need not be afraid of that. We need not give them power or authority. We need not give him power and authority in our lives. The lost should fear. The lost should fear the evil one. But not us. The lost have an angry God above. They have a guilty conscience within. They have a devil who prowls about roaring like a lion and they have a yawning hell beneath. They should fear, but not us. We need not fear. We ought to fear being fearful. And we, not, we need not be cowards in days of darkness when the devil seems so omnipotent and omniscient because he's not. The day's coming when he'll be bound and cast into the abyss for a thousand years. Praise God for that. If we know that to be true, then we face him with that knowledge. And we live with the knowledge of how things will be resolved here. And we live with authority and we don't live in fear. That's who we should be in the midst of this perverse generation. And hopefully it will point others to Christ and cause them to flee to the Messiah. It says in verse 1 that this angel had a great chain and then we're told in verse 2 that this devil is bound, obviously, with this great chain for a thousand years. Now this is the foolish thinking of some people when they approach the Word of God. The devil is a spiritual being. How can he be bound with a chain? Therefore, this is not all literal. This is a big symbol. All of this is an allegory. It's not literally a thousand years. It's just presenting spiritual truth in a, in, a, in a story or a parable. The millennium's now. We're living in the kingdom of God. It's now. Satan was bound at the cross. Blah, 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 blah. There's a lot of bad teaching like this in the churches. And it goes back to foolish reasoning that would say something like, the devil's a spiritual being. How can he be bound by a chain? Therefore, none of this is literal. That's the thinking that leads people to believe false teaching. False teaching like amillennialism or postmillennialism. If you really believe these ideas, living right now in 2019 on the other side of the, of the Israel returning to the land, then you're no, when you approach the scriptures, you may as well be a blind and deaf mute. And you can't be trusted to exegete John 19, 35. Jesus wept. Go back to the Word of God and get an education before you start teaching others, if that's the way you think. Why would we think that a spiritual being couldn't be bound with a chain? Well, I'll tell you why. Because this is the typical Western mindset that we've grown up in. Here in the Western world, we're so consumed with materialism that our mind has a hard time understanding that something doesn't have to be physical. Something doesn't have to be able to be seen and touched casually to be real or to be literal. We think that just because something is spiritual, it's symbolic. Because our Western mind has to see and feel. And we can't think that anything is literal or real unless it's physical. Now, the Eastern world, Hinduism, Buddhism, they've toyed with these truths about 
physical and spiritual and literality, and they've gotten a lot closer to the truth in many ways than we have. But literal doesn't mean physical. There are things that are physical in this life, and there are things that are spiritual in this life, and both are very literal. Both are very literal. Western medicine, I mean, Eastern medicine, I think, understands this better than Western medicine. In Western medicine, we associate sickness and treatment with symptoms. With symptoms. Only those things that can physically be seen or touched. And yet, oftentimes, the problem is not the symptom. It's a central problem. And if we address the central problem, which may or may not be able to be seen or touched, then the symptoms will go away. Half of the problems that Americans have physically that drive them to the doctor are a result of a spiritual problem. Constantly stressed out, constantly worrying, constantly living in fear. These are spiritual problems that are very literal that produce physical symptoms in the body. What's the leading cause of heart problems in this country? Stress. Stress is a spiritual problem. It can't be seen or held or observed physically. Its results or its byproducts can be observed, but it's an internal problem. Eastern medicine understands this a lot better than Western medicine, and it attempts a lot of times to deal with the root cause instead of the symptoms. But we here in the Western world are so materialistic, everything has to be physical to be real. No, there is a spiritual realm, my friends. There are spiritual things that are just as real and just as literal as the nose on my face. When we can't distinguish between the physical and the spiritual, then we are not able to distinguish when Jesus speaks about the kingdom of heaven something very physical and literal in the kingdom of God, something spiritual that dwells within us. The day's coming when those two will be one, when the physical unites with the spiritual. And that's the days we're talking about now, the millennium. But we don't distinguish those things. Turn to Luke 24. It's very interesting how we see both spiritual and physical here. And yet both are very literal. Luke 24. This is Jesus after his resurrection. And two disciples late in the afternoon on resurrection Sunday were walking on an old road toward Emmaus. The actual location of Emmaus is up for is is is, uh, is uh, uh, unsure over in Israel. Uh, the site that's identified as Emmaus by, I believe, the Orthodox Church doesn't fit the biblical narrative because it's so far from Jerusalem, it disagrees with what Luke says here. And so now they say, well, Luke was wrong, and he accidentally got his numbers wrong. Well, no, I don't believe that. When I look at truth, I go to the Scriptures. I accept it for what it says. But the old Roman road that started at Jerusalem and it went down all the way to the coast uh, went through a place called Emmaus. You can actually walk on that old Roman road today. Um, it's not advertised. It's not something that's easy to find. But if you know people and they can give you good directions, you can find it. Eric and I were able to drive out 
and find that old Roman road. Now, I believe we were a lot farther along down that road than where Jesus would have walked with these two disciples. But yet the road was there. And it was fascinating late in the afternoon, that same time of day to be walking that road. And up at the top of a hill, there's some ruins overgrown with grass that are the ruins of an old Roman tax station that were on these roads. The Romans charged tolls to use their roads, and they had stations set up whereby they would collect taxes. And it was an amazing thing to walk that road late in the afternoon, knowing that somewhere on this same road, 2,000 years ago, our Savior appeared to two of his disciples. And what they saw and beheld was very literal. Luke chapter 24, verses 30 and 31, he, he, he met up with these guys. They conversed on the road, and they asked him to join him for the night, to join them for the night. And he sat down with them late in the day to break bread. In verse 30, and it came to pass as he sat at meat with them, he took bread and blessed it and break and gave it to them. And their eyes were open, and they knew him, and he vanished out of their sight. Jesus vanished. Did that make him any less literal in his interactions with them? No. He vanished out of the, their sight. One of, the, one of the attributes of his resurrection body. Then you get down to verse 36. And these two ran back to Jerusalem to tell the disciples what had happened. And then it says in verse 30, 36, As they thus spake, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them. And said, peace be unto you. So he vanished somewhere near Emmaus. And then he suddenly appeared in the presence of his disciples. You see, Jesus was in his spiritual body. But he wasn't any less literal than he had been in his physical body. If you look in John 20... One of Jesus' resurrection appearances, there's, some interest, there's an interesting detail highlighted. Then that same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, the doors were shut fast. The disciples were assembled for what? Fear of the Jews. Came Jesus and stood in the midst and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. Jesus suddenly appeared when the doors were shut. He didn't open the door and walk through. He was there. Eight days later in verse 26, and after eight days again, his disciples were within and Thomas was with them this time. Then came Jesus, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace be unto you. Of course, Thomas reached forth and felt the wounds in his hand and his side and his feet and said, My Lord and my God. Did Jesus say, Don't call me God. Don't, I'm just a... I'm just the son. you got to worship God. No, Jesus received his worship because Jesus is God. Jesus is God in human flesh. Jesus is the son of God. He's that person of the Trinity that can be viewed and seen with human eyes. My Lord and my God. Jesus appeared to his disciples in his resurrection spiritual body. John tells us that we shall be raised just like he is. So that his resurrection body, a spiritual body, is a model of what ours will be. It can disappear and appear. It can go through walls. We see in other parts of the gospel that it actually can eat and drink.
Jesus was in a spiritual body, but yet he was very literal. Wasn't a symbol. Wasn't a symbol at all. When I, when I read about these things, I think about the Messiah. And I think about some things that are said about trusting in God versus trusting in man in the Old Testament. In Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 5, it says, Cursed are those who trust in men or trust in man and make, re make flesh his refuge. And then down in verse 7, but blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord. So it's a cursed thing to trust in a man, but it's a blessed thing to trust in the Lord. The Hebrew word used here in Jeremiah is not the strongest word there is for trust. It's, it's a word that's not so precipitous as others. So think of it as a lower level of trust. It's a cursed thing to even put a low level of trust in men. But blessed are those when they'll even put a low level of trust in God. And then it brings to mind the great messianic psalm when I think about who Jesus is and what Thomas said to him. And I'm trying not to get off the topic here. But at the end of Psalm 2, we're talking about the time when Christ returns. It's a prophetic picture of the Messiah being anointed, coming to sit upon His throne. And this obviously includes the incarceration of that old serpent. And then we're told at the end, Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish from the way when His wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in Him. So we're talking about the Messiah, the king sitting on David's throne, the one God has anointed, the son, and blessed are those that put their trust in him. Now the word for trust here is a stronger level of trust than we see in Jeremiah 17. It's a stronger level. It means to literally not just trust but to take refuge in. So if it's a cursed thing to even put a low level of trust in man, and yet we're called to put a stronger level of trust in the Son, then how can the Son be just a man? He's not. He's God. The Son, the Messiah, is God. The devil, the serpent, is not. We serve God, not the serpent. Why should we fear? That's an aside, that's an interesting few scriptures that you can show to a Jewish person who, has, who doesn't understand that the Messiah is God. Well, how then is it that we are to trust in the Son when Jeremiah tells us that we're cursed if we put our trust in man, if the Son is only a man? That's an interesting few verses you can use if you have an opportunity to speak about the Messiah to a lost sheep of the house of Israel. Turn to 1 Corinthians 15. Back to what I was saying about the physical and the spiritual. A spiritual being can be bound by a, a literal chain. Not a chain of iron, but he can be bound by a literal chain. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 44, there is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. And my friends, you can't be any clearer than that. Both are very literal. Our natural bodies before you today are literal. But the spiritual body in which Jesus appeared to his disciples was just as literal. 
They saw it, they touched it, they ate with it. There is a spiritual realm. And behind all natural events, regardless of what the Western mind thinks, regardless of what the foolish atheists or the news media say, behind all natural events, including what we're seeing in the Gaza today, are the operations of spiritual entities, the gods of men. And they are very literal, my friends. In fact, that's why Ephesians tells us to arm ourselves with the armor of God. Our offensive weapon being the Word of God because we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle against spiritual wickedness in high places. And just because these things are spiritual doesn't mean they're symbolic or they're any less literal. But you know what? There's a sovereign throne of God that sits above all that. And that's the point God is making to Ezekiel in the first chapter of his prophecy when he sees the judgment fire coming out of the north, and then he sees those living creatures, the same creatures that John sees in John, I mean, Revelation 4, the cherubim, with, sitting atop the great wheels within a wheel, turning about, going in all directions, but not having to turn. And then above that, he sees the firmament and the throne of God with the rainbow, just like John sees in Revelation 4. That's the point that's being made to the prophet is that though these things you're seeing are terrible, and though judgment is coming, there are spiritual operations going on behind the natural. And I, the Lord, sit atop all of it. I govern. We can say the same thing about what we see in here today in America. There's a thr sovereign throne of God that sits above all. It's funny how this is another thing the Eastern mind can conceive of better. They get closer to the truth a lot than we in the Western world. We're so much... We, we're so materialistic um, and we, we exalt reason as if human reason is more trustworthy than God's revelation. And we, ha we want to try to explain everything away because we think we sit atop the food chain. And yet we have people all over this country that end up in trouble, end up dead, end up missing, end up disappeared, and we just think there's an explanation for it all. I remember one time I had a, a brother with me from Asia that was traveling with me here in the United States, and I was listening to an interview with a detective uh, about some missing persons cases that have taken place, is, place in national parks, the wilderness areas, stuff that's unexplainable. And I was kind of fascinated with a lot of this, and we're listening, and this interview's going on, and the commentator and the, poli the police detective are debating back and forth what could be happening, what's the explanation. And my friend from South Asia just spoke up. I didn't even think he could understand because English is a second language, and I didn't, I didn't realize he could even understand what was being said. And he just spoke up out of the silence, and he says, that's easy. We know exactly what's doing that. That happens in my country all the time. It's those devils that cause you to get lost in the woods and never be seen again. And I kind of chuckled, but <laughs> it's almost like they got more common sense than we do. There are spirit, there's spiritual wickedness in high places. And they exist to seek, they seek and destroy. We'd be fools to even walk in the woods without a banner of trust in our Lord. We'd be fools not to trust in the Lord and to flee to Him for refuge. But as those that follow Christ, we have not, need not fear. We have not fear. This great chain that binds that old serpent, the devil, is a literal chain, but it's obviously not a physical chain. 
It's literal, but not physical. It's not made up of iron links, but it's a spiritual chain that binds a spiritual entity. And I have no problem accepting that because the materialistic Western mind has fallen. It's incomplete. This isn't some symbol. It's exactly what it says. The devil is bound with a chain. And he's bound for a thousand years. Exactly what is said. There is a physical, there is a spiritual, and they're both quite literal. We do well to remember that. We do well not to minimize the spiritual operations going on behind the scenes. Not to underestimate the deceiving power of the devil or the spirit of Antichrist. Remember, that's why we went into such detail in this study about Antichrist. Not that we're looking for him physically, but the spirit of Antichrist is alive and well. And his spirit is just as powerful and literal as his physical coming. And if we know him as he's presented in the scriptures, the better we know him as revealed in the scriptures, the better we can recognize his deceiving spirit. Though it be not physical, it's still literal. In Jude chapter 6, we're told that, you know, we learn that Satan's not the only spiritual being that's bound with a chain. The angels that left their first estate that's a reference back to the sons of God that came down from heaven and raped and married human women and produced giants. See, a lot of people have a problem with that. They can't conceive that there's a physical and a spiritual and both are very literal. Well, that could never happen. So that's not talking about that. That's talking about the sons of God were the descendants of Seth and the, you know, the sons of, 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 of uh, or, or the daughters of men were... Cain's daughters and they mixed and intermarried and all this. It's the same mindset that can't accept the millennium, can't accept that because we don't understand that spiritual and physical are very literal and they often overlap. Those were angels that came down and left their first estate and went after strange flesh just like Sodom and Gomorrah. You can't read Jude and 2 Peter and not come to the conclusion that those were Angels mating with women. And what happened? They were bound. They were bound and cast into a place called Tartarus. And guess what happens in Revelation? The sixth trumpet. They're set free. The demons are unleashed in the fifth trumpet. They're spiritual beings that look like locusts, but they're very <coughs> literal. And then these fallen angels who are already bound in everlasting chains... Are leashed, unleashed as well. Those aren't tanks and nuclear missiles and Iranian infantry. Those are very real spiritual beings wreaking havoc and destruction on this earth. And I have no problem accepting it for what it says. The angels that kept not their first estate were reserved in everlasting chains. An everlasting chain is one that can't be broken. This chain that the devil is bound with can't be broken. He has to be loosed. He has to be let go. He has to be set free. And these things are all very literal. Verse 2 also teaches us that Satan can be bound and confined with a chain, a spiritual chain, an everlasting chain, without the armies of heaven. In Revelation 12, there's a battle in heaven. Michael and his archangel, Michael the archangel and his angels fought against the devil. And his angels, and the devil and his angels were cast out of heaven and cast to the earth. 
Presently, the devil has access to heaven like he did in the book of Job. And he's accusing the brethren day and night before the Lord. Jesus Christ is our intercessor. He's our defense attorney. But there comes a point when the devil's cast out. He can't accuse the brethren anymore. And then he's really ticked off. And he goes after what? Israel, the woman, and the remnant of her seed, the tribulation saints. But now he's bound. And it involved a battle in heaven in Revelation 12. But here that's not needed. Satan doesn't need an army to bind him. He can be bound and confined by a single angelic arresting officer if God so wills. Never forget that the Lord can stop the devil's evil work the moment he is ready and it doesn't take an army. Here's just a single arresting officer. Doesn't tell us it was Michael or Gabriel. We're not given the name of an archangel. We're just told that an angel comes from, down from heaven arrests him and binds him and then casts him into the bottomless pit in verse 3. God can stop the devil's evil, evil work the moment he's ready. And it doesn't require very much effort. The same can be said for our nation, the good old U.S. of A. God doesn't need a Russian army and a nuclear superpower to put an end to us when he's ready. He can bring an end to this country with a band of horsemen who don't even have ammunition in their rifles if he wants to. In fact, in many ways, he's already about that. He's bringing an end to our nation, and he doesn't need an army. All he needs is roving, unarmed migrants that are flooding across our southern border. I don't think you folks have a clue what's going on at our southern border right now. That's being ignored by the terrorist news media organizations. People are flooding across our borders. Criminals, terrorists, they're coming in and nobody's even attempting to stop them. That's God's judgment upon us. It didn't require the rise of a great kingdom to overthrow Rome. Babylon was overthrown by the rise of a great kingdom, Persia. Persia's time was brought to the, an end by the rise of a great and mighty kingdom, the Greeks. The Greek empire eventually came to its demise because of the rise of Rome. But nothing arose after Rome, one of the most powerful and influential empires in the history of the world. Nothing arose after it to bring it to its demise. It was immorality. It was the same things in Rome going on that we see in Washington today and nobody was paying attention when the barbarians, uh, uh, Huns and tribesmen on horses started eating at the border. Eating at the border. And eventually they even sacked Rome. And one day people woke up and the, the empire just fell apart. No army. No rise of a subsequent kingdom. Rome fell, and the same thing will happen here. God does not need an army because all nations, it says in Isaiah, are just a drop in the bucket to him, including this nation. We are so prideful in this country. I don't even like to talk about this nation as the greatest nation that's ever been. It's not true. The greatest nation that exists in human history is the nation God chose for his purposes, and that's Israel. But we're not the greatest nation ever.
God's blessed us. But when we start thinking we're great and, and rest upon our greatness and turn the blind eye, we're fools. This nation is weak today. People can't even stand up for themselves. And when a true hero from time to time does stand up, like the young man down in UNC Charlotte who didn't run like a coward like everybody else, but ran at that shooter to try to stop him and pay for it with his life, and then nothing is ever said about that in the news media because a white boy who had some courage and some guts went after a shooter to stop him and gave his life. See, we don't even, that doesn't even get any covered by the terrorists in, in, in the news media. So when, when heroes do stand up, nobody cares. Nobody follows example. We're weak, and judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. You know, a subtle evidence of this, I don't, we were here on resurrection, Re resurrection Sunday talking about the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And I keep meaning to turn this stuff off and I keep forgetting. I, I get notifications when the president tweets. A few days ago, I, man, it was like 25 tweets over a period of two or three minutes. Some of them are good. It, it, it's a way I can follow what's going on and what's going on in the mind of our president so I know how to pray for him. But on Resurrection Sunday, we're getting here. We're here gathered to praise God for the resurrection of our Lord. And he sends out a tweet that pops up on my phone as we're getting ready to start church. And he wishes everybody a, a happy Easter. And then he goes on to talk about the American economy and how high the numbers are and how great the numbers are. And we have the greatest economy in the world. And I just thought to myself, Mr. President, you don't have a clue. You know, I appreciate you. I pray for you. I voted for you once. I, I don't know what I'll do in 2020. I don't know what I'll do. I'm not going to say what I'm going to do. But you don't have a clue either. If you think that our greatness is tied to an economy, America will never be great again if this is the way we think. And God won't need much of an army to overthrow us. I think we've done a pretty good job of that ourselves. But God puts an end to evil when He's ready on His time frame and on his schedule, and he doesn't need an army to do it. This is seen very clearly here with the dragon. That old serpent takes us back to Genesis 3. Same old devil, and we're going to see later in the chapter, without the devil, same old human nature. Guys, we can know exactly what's going to happen. We can read things that the media puts out there. We can know exactly where this country's going if we understand two things as they're revealed in the Word of God. Very simple things. You don't need a seminary degree. If we understand that old devil and we understand that old human nature, we can know exactly what's going to happen in this country. People talk about history being biased and, and revisionist history, and it's hard to know what really happened. We see this in martial arts history a lot. Martial arts history is glorified. And these old instructors and senseis are talked about as if they were gods or something. And there's a lot of things, a lot of holes in martial arts history because things weren't written down. But if I understand human nature and I understand the pride of men and the egos of men, I can tell you exactly what happened and exactly why things are the way they are in this particular thing today. Because there are spiritual truths, eternal truths, that predict how history is going to unfold. Men are predictable. America's predictable. The devil's predictable. But why do we fall for his tricks? Why? Same old devil 
cast out of Eden, Revelation 12, cast out of heaven. Now he's cast out of earth. And eventually he'll be cast into the lake of fire. Here we're told in verse 2 again, a thousand years. Six times in this passage, a thousand years. This arrest, this casting is very public. In fact, it's a spectacle. Not only to those left on the earth, but to those in hell as well. We learn about this in a familiar passage where another name of Satan is revealed to us. Isaiah 14. In the context of what we just read in Revelation 20, read this with fresh eyes and you'll see that it's talking about this very thing. Isaiah 14 this is a proverb that the prophet takes up against the king of Babylon, a physical entity. And yet behind that physical entity was a puppeteer, a spiritual entity, the real king of Babylon, the devil himself. A physical and a spiritual, both very literal. Isaiah 14, 5. The Lord hath broken the staff of the wicked and the scepter of the rulers. When is it that the Lord breaks the staff of the wicked? It says that Antichrist will be broken without hand in the book of Daniel. Right here, what we've just talked about. This is pointing to what Christ does at Revelation 19. It's on the near horizon fulfilled in the overthrow of Babylon, but the ultimate horizon is just what we've been reading about. He who smote the people in wrath with a continual stroke he that ruled the nations in anger is persecuted and none hindereth. The whole earth is at rest and is quiet. They break forth into singing. Someone who smote the nations and made trouble for the nations is suddenly removed and then the whole earth is at rest. When does that happen? Right here in Revelation 20. Yea, the fir trees rejoiceth thee, and the cedars of Lebanon, saying, Since thou art laid down, no feller is come up against us. Hell from beneath is moved for thee, to meet thee at thy coming. It stirreth up the dead for thee, even all the chief ones of the earth. It has raised up from their thrones all the kings of the nations. All they shall say, speak and say unto thee, Are you become just like us? Are you really become as weak as we are? Art thou become like us? Thy pomp is brought down to the grave, and the noise of thy vials, the worm is spread under thee, and the worm's over thee. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer? The one who deceived the nations is bound and cast into the abyss, and the dead are stirred up. The dead in hell are stirred up to see. What? This, this powerful one has become just like us in death. It's a public spectacle that even the souls in hell behold. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer? This is a correct translation of the King James Bible. I won't make any apologies for it here. Lucifer, son of the morning. Not the morning star. Jesus Christ is the morning star. So beware of those modern Bibles that say, How are you fallen from heaven, O morning star? It's that spirit that would want you to think that Jesus is somehow not who he is. The morning star exalted in heaven. 
This is Lucifer, the son of the morning, not the morning star. Jesus said, I am the morning star in Revelation. Son of the morning, how art thou cut down to the ground which did weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thy heart, I will ascend unto heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. Remember we talked about God's throne way out there beyond Polaris, the north star above the firmament. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. I will be omniscient. I will be omnipotent. Yet, verse 15, thou shalt be brought down to hell and to the sides of the pit. That word pit there means abyss. It's the same word we see in Revelation 20 in Greek, abuson, which is where we get the word abyss. So this one who thought he could ascend to heaven is cast down the sides of hell into the abyss. The sides of hell whereby the dead are stirred up to see. They that see thee shall narrowly look upon thee and consider, saying, Is this the man that made the earth to tremble and did shake kingdoms? That made the world as a wilderness and destroyed the cities thereof? That opened not the house of his prisoners? All the kings of the nations, even all of them lie in glory, every one in his own house. In other words, all the kings of the nations that died, at least they have a grave, at least they have a monument and a memorial. But thou art cast out of thy grave like an abominable branch, and as the raiment of those that are slain, thrust through with a sword. Verse 20, thou shalt not be joined with them in burial, because thou hast destroyed thy land and slain thy people. And it goes on, and it says... Uh, Verse 24, the Lord of hosts hath sworn, saying, Surely as I have thought, so shall it come to pass. And as I have purposed, so shall it stand. These things are prophesied concerning Lucifer here. God says, I'll bring it to pass. And that's exactly what happens in Revelation 20, 1 through 3. Isaiah saw the exact same thing that John sees. The New Testament is not new revelation. It's confirming Eyewitness testimony of what's already been written. Then it goes on to say in verse 26 or verse 25 that I will break the Assyrian in my land. The Assyrian is the Antichrist, the servant of Lucifer. And upon my mountains tread him underfoot. Then shall his yoke depart from off them and his burden depart from off their shoulders. This is the purpose that is purposed upon the whole earth. And this is the hand that is stretched out upon all the nations. This verse here proves that we're talking about the end times. The overthrow of Satan. It is a public spectacle. Isn't it great when wicked, corrupt people in government or dictators are finally caught, they're finally tried, and they're finally condemned, and their arrest and their sentencing and their punishing is public? Isn't that a, isn't that a glorious thing? It's justice. There'll be justice here. A spectacle, a public arrest, a public <clears throat> casting straight into the hell. No memorials, no graves. He that caused the nations to tremble thrown straight into the abyss. And even the dead in hell are stirred up to see it. And they marvel. Very public. As that wicked serpent has done to so many others, so will be done to him. Do you remember what was done to God's two anointed preachers in 11... Revelation 11, they were preaching and then Antichrist had them killed. No burial. 
Their bodies were thrown out in the streets and left there. And all the world rejoiced and exchanged gifts over the demise of these street preachers. No burial. But three days later, they sat up and rose up to heaven, a rapture of sorts, and the world feared. The evil one threw the bodies of those anointed street preachers in the streets. No burial. So as was done to them, so is done to him. No burial. Arrested, cast into the abyss. No memorial. Glorifying him like these wicked kings who die and have these big monuments and tablets that oftentimes rewrite history. Revelation 20 verse 1 starts with a, with a very important word, and... It's a Greek conjunction, pronounced Kai. Verse 2, and, and the angel came down and arrested the devil, and he laid hold on him and bound him for a thousand years, and cast him into a bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal upon him. This word and that's repeated time and time again, this Greek conjunction, makes it very clear that these are real and successive events. These are not symbols. These are not parables. These are not fairy tales meant or fables meant to teach us a moral truth. These are real and successive events that happen one right after another. Very literal. The devil is cast into the bottomless pit and he's shut up and they set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that, he must be loosed a little season. I don't know if you remember, we talked about this back with the fifth and the sixth trumpet judgments when we saw the abyss opened up and those demons come out and hell is unleashed on earth. Satan is given the keys, the star falls from heaven, opens the pit, and then those demons are unleashed on earth. And now an angel comes down with the same keys and probably changes the lock through the, throws the devil in there, and then he's sealed in this same abyss that he opened. And back then, it was a day when not everybody was here. I remember it was at Gigi's house, and something was bothering me physically, so I sat down when I preached. But we talked about the underworld. We, the, the Bible presents the underworld for us. You know, the underworld or hell, I believe, is in the heart of the earth. That's what the Bible teaches. Men don't know exactly what's under the crust of the earth. A lot of that's theory. But hell is in the heart of the earth according to the word of God. And in hell you have, or the underworld, you have two compartments. You have one which is called paradise or Abraham's bosom. It's where Lazarus went in the story that Jesus told in Luke 16. It was the place of rest, paradise. Jesus told the thief on the cross, today you shall be with me in paradise. Paradise is one compartment. A VIP lounge. That compartment is empty today. There's no one there. It's been boarded up. You see, when Jesus died and went down to hell and then rose from the dead, Ephesians tell us that he went into the lower parts of the earth and then he led captivity captive. And we see that in Jerusalem, some of the graves of the saints opened up and the Old Testament saints were seen walking around the city. Christ, when he offered up his blood on the heavenly tabernacle, sometime between, in, sometime between when he met Mary Magdalene on Easter morning or, or resurrection morning, and she, he said to her, don't touch me, 
When she tried to hug him, I haven't yet ascended to my father, but go tell my brethren that I'm risen from the dead. And then that afternoon, when ladies on their way back, to, or sometime later that day, morning, when ladies were on their way back to Bethany over the Mount of Olives, he met with them and they hugged him and there was no problem. Sometime Christ went up to heaven, as Hebrews tells us, and offered his blood at the altar of the heavenly tabernacle. And thereby access was granted to men into the very presence of God. And Christ led captivity captive. And he emptied out paradise. And the first fruits of the resurrection, Christ and the Old Testament saints, were ushered in the presence of God in their resurrection body. We, therefore, when we die, are absent from the body, present with the Lord. We, the harvest, receive our resurrection bodies at the rapture. But paradise was emptied out by Jesus. The other compartment is hell. Or as was said in Greek, hadis. Hell, the Bible says, is full. And it can never be completely full. And its mouth is open constantly wanting to feed on more. Between paradise and hell is a great gulf. In the story of Lazarus and the rich man. Remember the rich man called out to Abraham and said, Man, uh, can you come bring me, send Lazarus just to touch his finger in the water and to cool my tongue? And Abraham said... There's a great gulf fixed between us. We can't come over there. You can't come over here. That gulf is the abyss. The word in Greek is where we get the word abyss in English. It's the bottomless pit. So paradise and hell, which is God's county jail. When you die in your sins, you go to hell. It's a spiritual prison. It's a very literal prison. And that's where you await judgment. Hell, the county jail, the lake of fire we see later where the beast and the antichrist are cast. That's God's penitentiary, eternal penitentiary. But the great gulf is the abyss. And that abyss was emptied out by Satan in Revelation chapter 9 verses 1 and 2. And what he didn't realize is that when he emptied it out, he made room for himself. And this is where he is cast. His actions and his words Fulfill God's truth and speak his own judgment. That's the amazing thing. That's the amazing thing. There's a lesson here, and I'm going to end shortly. Be patient with me. There's a lesson here. Turn to James. Satan emptied out the abyss or was allowed to empty out the abyss to unleash hell on earth, God's judgment, the demons and the fallen angels. And... In doing so, he pronounced his own judgment. He made room, he, made, he emptied out a cell to make room for him. And as I was thinking about this, I thought about something James says in James chapter 3. It talks about the tongue. The tongue is a little member, it boasts great things. Verse 6, and the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. So is the tongue among our members that it defileth the whole body and setteth on fire the course of nature and is set on the fire of hell. And then it goes on to talk about how all types of beasts can be tamed in this earth by mankind. I mean, Bethany's tamed our cat to where he'll actually shake for you now like a dog does. Beasts can be tamed. But verse 8, the tongue can no man tame. It is unruly evil full of deadly poison. We bless God one minute and then we curse men. Out of the same mouth comes blessing and cursing. These things ought not to be amongst us. But the tongue is a fiery member that's very powerful. 
We think of the devil being powerful, and he is. Our tongue is powerful. And as the devil acted out and, in essence, spoke his own judgment when he emptied out that abyss, we need to be careful that we don't do the same. We need to think about what we say. Um, we, we, we can speak our own judgment if we're not careful. I think of Caiaphas, the high priest, when they were plotting. He was plotting with the Sanhedrin to kill Jesus. Caius, Caiaphas said something that was he didn't realize was actually pretty prophetic. And it spoke his own judgment and the judgment of all those Sanhedrin. John 18, 14. Now Caiaphas was he which gave counsel to the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. Caiaphas was like, look, we need to put this man to death so the Romans won't come in and make problems for us. So it's either he dies or we die at the hands of the Romans. So I think we need to kill him. It's better for one man to die than the people. Well, he didn't realize that yet. It was expedient that one man, the second Adam, die for the people. And thereby the people can have life. But in doing so, in trying to protect Israel from the Romans, what happened 40 years later? Spoke his own judgment. They came and destroyed the temple. Sometimes the wicked speak prophecy against themselves and they don't even know it. I think of two incidences in Israel's history where Israel's mouth got her in very big trouble and she's paid the price. One of those was in Numbers chapter 14 after the spies came back from spying out the land of Canaan. What did the people say to Moses? What was it that caused Joshua and Caleb to tear their clothes? And cry out against the foolishness. They said, you Moses, you and God brought us out into this wilderness to die. We should have stayed in Egypt. Sorry, I'm not sure I understand. I don't know how I could be any more clear. <laughs> you brought us out into this wilderness to die in this desert. And look what, look what God says. Numbers, I think it's Numbers 14. God says, How long shall I bear with this evil congregation which murmur against me? I have heard the murmurings of the children of Israel which they murmur against me. Go tell them this. As truly as I live, saith the Lord, as you have spoken in my ears, so will I do to you. Your carcasses shall fall in this wilderness. And all that were numbered of you according to your whole number from 20 years old and upward which have murmured against me. You won't come into this land that I promised you. I didn't say it. You said it. Israel spoke her own judgment and it fell upon her. There was another time when Israel spoke her own judgment and she's paid for it for the last 2,000 years. And when we think about the horrible things that have been done to the Jewish people down through the years that are done today, we need to remember this as well. It certainly doesn't excuse it. And it certainly doesn't mean that we should pray against the enemies of Israel and not pray for the peace of Jerusalem. But Israel has failed to see something. And we need to pray that God would open their eyes. Turn to Matthew 27. 
This was probably one of the stupidest things the Jewish people uh, ever said in their history. Even more so than Numbers 14. Matthew 27, verse 24, When Pilate saw that he could prevail nothing, but rather that a tumult was made, he took water and he washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just or righteous person. Pilate couldn't find anything that Jesus had done wrong. In fact, Pilate's wife came to him and warned him not to do something stupid because she'd had a dream about this man and that he was more than just a man. Be very careful. I wouldn't do anything. And Pilate's like, he hasn't done anything wrong. What do you want me to do? And then he's like, well, you know, usually I'll release a prisoner and let him free, be free for you guys at the Passover. I've got this murderer and this terrorist here. And then I've got Jesus. And they said, give us the murderer and the terrorist. That's how we are in this country today. The wicked people in our country would rather have the murderers and the terrorists come in this country than Christian people. Or than persecuted Christians or Jews who need to flee here for safety. Wicked. But he's not done anything wrong. I wash my hands. I am not guilty of this man's blood. And then look, verse 25. Then answered all the people. What people? The Jews. All those gathered. Many of the same people who had taken palm branches and said Hosanna when he rode into the, uh, uh, the gate of Jerusalem on a donkey just a week before. Many that had been healed or seen his miracles and heard his preaching in the temple. Then answered all the people and said, His blood be on us and on our children. Israel spoke their own judgment. And that blood that they spoke on their children is still called to hand today. That's why you see what you see. Speaking their own judgment. We need to pray that God opens the eyes of Jewish people living today who weren't even alive back then but reap the consequences even today of that foolishness. That they would see who their Messiah is. That it's Jesus, Yeshua. And that we wouldn't be boasting against the natural branches like we so often do and think we're any better because we're not. Our silence in many ways as a church in this country has spoken our own judgment. Satan's actions and words fulfilled his judgment, so it does to us. Let's be careful. Revelation 20, he was cast, verse 3, he was cast into a bottomless pit, pit. he was shut up, and a seal set upon him. Shut up and sealed is the divine sentence. Sealed with a seal, not a memorial that glorifies him like the tombs of the kings of old and the presidents of old, but a memorial for those that live on in the millennial reign to see and to consider. I think about what happened in a place called the Valley of Achor in the Old Testament when Achan took something he wasn't supposed to take. His family conspired with him. They disobeyed God. There was sin in the camp, and they lied about it. And when he was finally discovered, justice had to be served, and he and his family were stoned. And then what was done? There was a heap of stones piled on top of him in that valley that would be a reminder to Israel of what happens when there's sin in the camp. The seal 
over this place where Satan is cast. It's probably the same place that was opened up near the river Euphrates to let out the fallen angels. There's a sealed place there as a reminder for those in the millennium to see and consider. The sad thing is they don't. Satan has to go to the county jail. He has to go into the abyss without bail. Just like all the lost people he deceived. And when he's there, he can't deceive the nations anymore. Until the thousand years should be fulfilled. Thousand. Again. Thousand. It means a thousand. His primary objective since Genesis 3 is to deceive the nations. And now he's not allowed to do so anymore. There's a period of time, a thousand years, the reign of Christ, the kingdom of heaven on earth, when he's not allowed to do so. And he's forced to suffer the same fate. Antichrist, false prophet, cast right into the state pen, lake of fire. But the devil's going to go through the same process that the lost he has deceived go through, that die in their sins. He's going to county jail for a while. He's going to be let out. And then he too will be judged and thrown into that eternal penitentiary. That he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years should be fulfilled and after that he must be loosed for a little season. Satan is bound, but that's not the end of the story. After a thousand years, he's going to be let out. He's going to be set free for a short time. Why? Why in the world would this happen? Well, that can't be true. God would never do that. That's the, that's the way a lot of people approach the Scriptures. No. It has to happen. It, he must be loosed for a little season. Why is this? A thousand years of no devil. Think about that here on earth. No deceiving activity. No demonic influence. The nations and men who continue into the kingdom are allowed to enter and those born of them in an age much like before the flood when men will live the great ages, they'll have nothing to deal with but themselves. Their own fallen natures. And even without the serpent beguiling them, even with Christ on His throne ruling and reigning with a rod of iron and with His saints, natural man, the carnal mind will fail. He will Rebel, rebel against his maker. And when Satan is loosed, he won't, like I said before, he won't have to make allies. He will immediately find collaborators. And that's why there'll have to be a new heaven and a new earth where there is no fallen nature. Make no mistake, there are people who continue into the millennium. There are people in the millennium that are not the church, that are not the tribulation saints. The church and the tribulation saints we're going to see in verse 4 live and reign with Christ. But there are groups that are allowed to continue into a period of earth's history that returns to the way it was before the flood. It says in Isaiah that in that time a child will be 100 years old. A 100-year-old person will be a child in that day, just like the flood. These people will continue to live under the rule of Christ. They will have children who will be born and will grow up and they will have that fallen nature. Next time I'm going to talk about the groups of people that continue into the 
uh, millennium uh, that don't have resurrection bodies, that are not part of that first resurrection. Oh, they can be redeemed, but they're not ushered into that with the resurrection body like the saints, like the church, like the tribulation saints, the Old Testament saints. There's four groups of people. I'm going to talk about that. We're going to talk a little bit about the character of the millennium. But the devil is bound and he can deceive the nations no more. And why does this have to happen? It has to happen to demonstrate that man at his best state, even when he's under the rule of Christ, a benevolent king, when he can live to great age, when wildlife is tamed, when the curse is removed, even still man is at his best state vanity. And without a new heart, he cannot succeed. He fails. The millennium is proof that the devil made me do it is garbage. It's proof. So we're, we'll get into that a little bit next time. These things must happen. All of these things must happen to show us how much we need the Messiah. We read about Him now to drive us to the Messiah. We need Him. Without Him, we can't be right with God. We can't succeed. We will only fail. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity saith the preacher. But have hope. Our foe, that old devil, he's not omniscient. He's not omnipotent. Resist the devil. Submit yourself to God and he will flee from you. And as one day he himself will be bound. He'll be set free and then he'll be cast into a lake of fire with all wickedness, with all sin. And we'll be redeemed from the very presence of sin a new heavens and a new earth, as Peter says, wherein dwelleth righteousness. So I guess that's a pretty good stopping point. We got through the first three verses, the incarceration of Satan. Next time we're going to look at the millennium. It's sandwiched in verses 4 through 6. The Old Testament expands upon it greatly. We're going to look at some Old Testament passages. But Revelation 20 covers a lot of ground here in a short chapter because that's not the main focus of Revelation. However, these things are expounded upon in the Old Testament. It's nothing new. These aren't new teachings. This is the Old Testament brought to light and confirmed. It's God's commentary on what he's already written. And if God wants to write a commentary on what he's already written, he's free to do so. We can trust his commentary. We can't necessarily trust the commentaries of others. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful that, Lord, the old foe, that old devil and the serpent and Satan... His future has been written. His doom is sure. We're thankful for that. Help us, Lord, to submit ourselves to you, to humble ourselves, Lord, and to resist the devil. We pray that he would flee from us. We pray that you would open the eyes of those who are deceived by him. We pray for Israel, that they will see who their true Messiah is, that they will see why these things are happening, why they have to happen, and they will call upon the one who's already come and given his life for the sins of the nation and for the sins of the whole world. We thank you for that, Lord. Thank you for Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, that we can trust in him because he is God, he is true, he is righteous. Thank you for your word that we can wield against the powers of evil. And thank you that the victory is already won, as Keith Green once said in that old song he wrote, the battle is already won. May we find hope in that. 
May we shine as bright lights in this crooked and perverse world. And may the light we shine be an answer that the terrorist news organizations and the corrupt politicians and people that talk about saving the world can never provide to the lost who are hurting and seeking. Bless our food that we've it's been prepared for us. Bless our fellowship together. Thank you that we could gather and feast one with another upon your word and upon the things needful for the body. In Jesus' precious name I pray, amen.